Leonard here, and I know we all have a couple daily lists. You know what they are. The have-to-do list and the choose-to-do list. To make my daily choose-to-do list, you have to be special. And Papa's Roast Coffee is truly that special. That's why Papa's Roast Coffee is a regular choice of mine and so many others. Papa's Roast owners, Dean and Debbie Chris, take special care to provide a perfect roast on every bean. Sourced from a single origin, the coffee beans are roasted to perfection in small batches, and then, if that were not enough, the beans are packaged and shipped in an eco-friendly bag. Papa's Roast Coffee, from start to finish, has earned a place on my everyday choose-to-do list, and I think they will on yours too. Get your Papa's Roast Coffee at papasroast.com today. Now, to our conversation. Welcome to Say Yes and Become. I'm your host, Leonard Lee. And if you listen to us regularly, you usually get to hear a conversation with one of my amazing friends. But today on the pod, I've made just a shift today, and we might do it again later on this year. Uh, So that's right, it's me. I'm the problem, it's just me. Uh, Well, (laughs) you most likely knew that. The reason that I am, uh, it's just me today is because from time to time, I just want to take some time and answer a few questions that come across my path. To clarify, these are not questions that uh, come from a specific group of people or in a specific country, but rather these questions cross cultures, ethnicities, gender, age, socioeconomic statuses. These questions come at, at me from multiple places. When I'm in Africa, India, Central America, South America, wherever I am in, in, in the Caribbean, uh, all different places, pastors, leaders, and church folks are asking me these questions. When I'm flying and I'm on a, a 16-hour flight and the person sitting next to me finds out what I do, they say, hey, can I ask you a question? Or they phrase the question in the form of a statement. Uh, and that statement is, is to justify their own thinking of where they're at. And the questions uh, usually surface around an event or some kind of an activity, or not activity, but some kind of a, uh, of, of a, of a, a tragedy. And so... Um, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, fool anybody into thinking that in thirty to thirty-five minutes of a podcast, uh, that I'm going to answer questions that theologians, that scholars, educators, philosophers, poets, artists have tried to answer uh, for almost six thousand years of human history. Uh, I'm not going to be able to bring an answer that you can say, "Boy, that just satisfies everything." And so here's my hope. My hope is that uh, I would be able to have a conversation with you and that the answers would not be come across as though I'm intending to put a bow on top of what is called pain or frustration or hurt. They're not intended to ignore the layers of pain and frustration. This answer is not intended to assuage your grief or your anger, but simply to invite hope into the room where you keep these questions. See, we have a place where we store those questions and we bring them out uh, when we're triggered. We bring them out when our brain is not focused on something else. And so my prayer is that that we would be able to encourage uh, people to keep trusting God, to keep moving forward, and that we'd provide enough perspective of faith to let faith, hope, and love enter into the room of our hearts. So there's no sense in waiting in the shallows. Let's take a dive together in the deep end. 
The first question that uh, almost comes to me everywhere I go is about the problem of pain. I was in West Africa several years back and I was invited to speak to a, uh, a group of people and I was told beforehand that you're here to talk about how to deal with grief and how to help others deal with grief. And so I was like, okay, and I prepared to talk based upon that. And uh, I was there and I, w- I was there about 20 minutes early. And uh, <laughs> I asked the guy who had invited me in and he said, I said, so what is it you hope uh, is accomplished by today uh, and by our conversation today? Uh, which by the way, if you're a communicator and you're coming in to speak, that is a great question. What do you hope happens at the end of the day that moves people where you think they need to go? And so I asked him that question. He said, well, uh, in a few minutes, you're going to meet people who, um, who are living in grief. Their, uh, their children have been killed. Their uh, wives and husbands have been killed. Uh, they've been run out of their homes. And, uh, and I was like, oh, that's not what I was told I was doing. And I was not quite prepared to deliver that talk. And so, um, but the people showed up and as they showed up, they knew I was there and they were, they were thinking that I had the answer and I didn't, uh, they were thinking that I had the answer for what had happened in their world, what had happened in their lives. And they begin to parade in front of me, uh, uh, pig, page after page of pictures of their children who lay, uh, dismembered on the ground. Uh, they begin to show me pictures of, of what was left of their husband or their wife or their home, or their charred and burned village. And I I remember just looking at those and and weeping and thinking, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to add to this. The problem with pain is great. Several years back, I went to a village uh, in North India. And uh, right before I got there, Uh, there was just a convergence of multiple storms. And from the mountains came a rock slide and mudslide. And all you could see left of the village was just a few tops of of, of homes. These people didn't even have a warning. And I remember standing there and one of my partners in that region said, why did this happen? If God is so good... If God is so perfect, if he's so powerful, why doesn't he stop? You fill in the blank. We get those questions all the time. We think them all the time. Why doesn't God stop this? And there's variations on the question that point to a tragedy that we see out there or something that we experience in our own hearts, our own loss, when somebody uh, dies too soon, when cancer strikes them, when tragedy strikes them. The question is expressed in our personal lives and we're just able to reconcile the brokenness with the belief that God is loving, kind, good, and powerful. Maybe, uh, maybe you are sitting there right now and hearing this or you're driving or whatever you're doing and you're going, yeah, I, I have that question. I have that question in my life. I, I ask it if God's so good or maybe you've been asked that question and your answer is, I don't know. Or sounds like a, a, a report from a theological journal. <laughs> well, because of da da da, and you, you put all that in, and then you walk away going, man, I'm not sure that that answer satisfied. Well, I'm not sure it did either, and I'm not sure today will as well, but I do know this, that we have answers 
that, are, that circle around this question. And the question that, that we're asking is, is why is our world so broken? And why doesn't God do more? See, if I, as I travel and I talk about various things like this, one of the things that I talk about is that our world is broken. And everybody agrees with me. I don't stand there and say our world is broken and people go, no, it's not. The world's not broken. They all agree. And I can just point to a few different things like a tsunami that sweeps through Indonesia or through East India or when there's a fire that breaks out in California and destroys literally an entire town and everything in it. And people say, well, it just, just doesn't seem right. doesn't seem fair. Our world is broken. And then when I talk about people uh, and, 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 and how broken we are as people, to me that's interesting as well because once I begin to describe what's happening in our world, people say, yeah, that, we're pretty broken too. We're pretty broken as well. And, and, and when I begin to describe what slavery looks like today, what's, what, what trafficking looks like today, what's happening with, with uh, kids and families around the world, what food scarcity looks like today and what greed looks like today, we can all look and say, man, people are pretty broken. People are pretty broken. So our world's broken. People are broken. And if we're at our most honest place, here's the only thing we can say is, yeah, I'm broken too. I'm broken too. You know that sigh that you give at the edge of your bed when you're getting ready to go to bed at night and you sit down and you go, oh man. That exhale you feel when, uh, when you get up in the morning and you're facing a day and you realize that you've got to deal with a conflict that, well, you created. It's not hard to sit down and go, yeah, I think there's some brokenness in me too. And so one of the questions that center around the idea that, that there is a loving God, why doesn't he do more? There's a loving God and he's perfect and he wants me to trust him. How come our world is so messy? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much loss? Why is our world so broken? We know it's true. There's, a, there's, a, there's an answer to that and it might sound a little theological, but it's really personal and practical. Um, see, the brokenness of our world comes from Adam and Eve who sinned and ate the fruit from the tree that God said, do not eat from this tree. And when they did, here's what God said would happen. Uh, death would come upon the world. Pain and hurt would come upon the world because they chose to take the world in a direction and humanity in a direction that was unintended or not in the design of God. This was their choice, and they did it. And God said, okay, well, if that's where you're going to take it, okay, take it there. I was explaining this to a, uh, to a group of pastors in, uh, in West Africa, and one of them said to me, why did God put the tree in the garden? Man, that is a zillion-dollar question. It's bigger than a million. Inflation, I guess. I don't know. Um, why did God put the tree in the garden? And I think that's such a great question. And, and I think there's, there, to some degree, there's an I don't know to answer it. But to another degree, there is a couple thoughts that I, would, I shared with him and I'd like to share with you. I think God does everything God does 
for his own love and his own glory. Now, when I say for his own love, it's not self-love. God's saying, well, I do it because I just love me so much. But it is God saying, I do everything I do because I love you. I love you. And he does everything he does so that we would be able to see him for who he is, his own glory, to see the full weight and the beauty of God. Because it's when we do that, that our life takes shape the way it was intended to be. See, here's what happened. Satan said to Adam and Eve as they were leaning on the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, uh, they were leaning there and they were enjoying the beauty and the shade of this tree. They looked at the fruit and they said, man, it's beautiful. Uh, and, they, and, and Satan comes and he says to them, he says, listen, you got to understand something. You got to understand something that, that God is worried. God's afraid that if you eat from this tree, well, <laughs> you're going to be like him and he doesn't want that. He got, God's trying to hold you down. He's trying to hold you back. And man, isn't that, the, isn't that the message we have seen and heard in our culture for so long that, that God is trying to push you back? That's why we don't want him. And God understands this. He says, listen, when, when you live in my love and when you see me as I am, well, here's the deal. That's the best life. That's the life you were created, you were created for. And so he says, Satan says, well, when you eat from this tree, you're going to be like God. God put the tree in the garden not to tempt us, but rather to help us see that we're not him. That tree represented that we had limitations and restrictions, and God does not. It was an act of love, not of seduction. It was an act of God saying, listen, you're not like me. In fact, there's a sentence from the Bible and it says this. It says that my ways, God speaking, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Because as high as the heaven is above the earth, so are my ways different from yours. And what God is saying in that moment, in that, in that, that thought process, is not that, hey, we have similar paths. We're kind of like each other. We're, you know, we're, we're close. He's actually saying, no. We're not even close. We're not, it's not, they're just not the same. And so when God put the tree in the garden, here's what he was doing. He was saying to Adam and Eve, here is a permanent and constant reminder that you and I are not the same. That you're created, I'm creator. That, that, that I have this love for you that I don't want you to ever cross that line because when you cross that line, it'll kill you. It will destroy everything that I have created for you. Because you need to see who I am. That's my glory. And you need to know that I love you. God's creative power uh, demonstrated a love for Adam and Eve that is so unique and so different. And so he was very clear. He put the tree in the garden to show us his love and his glory, who he is. And he was clear and he said, listen, you guys can't eat that. I'm clear about the consequences, but Adam and Eve had free will. God created them with free will so that the love that he wanted to express with them would be voluntary and not mandatory. That they'd be able to say, man, God, we love you too. We see how generous you are. We see how great you are. We see your magnificence and we love you. But Satan came and he said, listen, 
you're not, you're, God's not fair to you. He put this tree of knowledge of good and evil here because he is afraid that if you eat it, well, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to be like him. Can I just say this really quick? God has never been worried that we're going to overtake him, that we're going to be more powerful than him, that we are going to be exactly like him and know everything he knows. But we ate from the tree of good and evil. I say we, meaning humanity. Uh, Adam and Eve did. And ever since that time, we have gained that knowledge, haven't we? We've gained the knowledge of what suffering looks like, of what death looks like, of what murder looks like, what pain looks like, what, what it is to fight the elements of pestilence, whether uh, we have learned everything we need to know about good and evil, which we were not meant to know. Because we actually don't possess the tools to function with good and evil. In fact, we live in a culture today that is literally flipping the script and saying good is evil and evil is good. There are things that shouldn't be and we're saying, no, that's good. And there are things that should be and we're saying, no, that's bad. And I see that all over the world where I travel. Here's what Satan was saying. He was saying that God's boundaries are because God is jealous of you and afraid of you. And God was saying, my boundaries are so you could live a life of satisfaction, the one I intended you. Well, as I, as I began to explain that answer to, to the pastors in, in, in West Africa, uh, one of them responded back and said, well, then why does God judge us so harshly for a mistake? If I were God, I would not send people to hell for a sin unless it was a really, really bad sin like murder. Or, or, or harming children or something. Those are the people that I would really get. And uh, I pause for a moment. It's one of those pauses that I have often when people ask me questions. And I think, man, I'm going to say something here, God. You should put words in my mouth. Um, you should be able to just kind of give me the right answer. Because this is serious. This is not arrogance. This is curious. These are people who are hurting and wondering. And so I, 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 he said, why does God judge us people so hardly for a mis hard for a mistake, so harshly? If I were God, I wouldn't do that. And I said, well, of course you wouldn't because you're not holy. You would give them a pass because in doing so, you give yourself a pass. You don't understand the difference between holy and un unholy. You don't know the difference between good and not good between dead and alive. You don't understand that the gap in the span, when you are dead, you can't fix that. When you are unholy, you can't fix that. When you are not good, you can't fix that. And so therefore, you would say, I'm going to create degrees of holy, degrees of good, because I'm going to show that I have maybe more benevolence or kindness than God. Which you don't, by the way, because... He does have the ability to fix that. I was talking with a, uh, a family and, uh, and I, was, well, I was speaking in church and then afterwards I was talking with a family and one of the things I said was that um, we don't understand the, the, the concept of being good or goodness. And what I mean by that is simply this, is that, is that um, when we tell people to be good, we're really telling them not to be bad. 
Your kids go to somebody's house and you say, now you kids be good in there. And you're not saying, I need you to go around doing good. You're saying, I need you to not go around breaking stuff, fighting with their kids and doing bad. When somebody tries to justify their life and their behavior or the way they are, they will almost always say this, I'm a good person. I can't tell you how many services and funerals I've been to where somebody just said, oh, there was such a good person. And what they're saying is, is they didn't go around doing bad, not nearly as much as, but they just invested their life in doing good. We don't have a concept of good and bad uh, and how it works, dead and alive. And that brokenness has created a gap between us and God that we do not have the ability to measure. And that's why, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus said, listen, it's not good if you eat this fruit. That's why he warned us. He knew that that would happen if we ate of that fruit. The pastor smiled at me when I said, uh, it's because you're not holy. And he said, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me now. Um, so the question that, that comes from that is, well, Okay, I get that I'm broken. I understand that. And you're kind of giving me a theological little bit of a story here. And while I might not agree with all of it, I, I get where you're coming from and why you think that way. But why doesn't a loving God stop it? Why doesn't a loving God stop that? I remember being underneath my car working on uh, things and my big fat fingers could not fit in between the... the uh, uh, the manifold or couldn't get underneath, couldn't get to a bolt or something that would just go wrong or you'd put it all back together and look and you go, oh man, there's the filter. Shoot, I, I forgot to put that in. And and I remember being under there and and I don't never want a recording of me working on a car because it's not pretty. Um, uh, I do not sing arias. I, I, well, you know what I do. I use bowling words. And see, here's the thing. Why doesn't God do more is the question. Why doesn't he stop this? He could. He's, he's loving. He's powerful. Is he too weak to stop the flood? Is he too weak to stop the tsunami? Is he too weak to stop the earthquake? Is he too weak to stop the murderer? Or does he not care? Maybe he's strong enough, but he doesn't care enough. Boy, those are questions that run through all of our minds. Can I be honest with you? I still live under those questions. I still wonder that. And so I'd lay under my car working on it. And I think, God, it would just not be hard for you. It just would not be hard for you to fix this car for me, to make, to give me a car that I don't have to spend money on to fix. And it just wouldn't be hard if you wanted to just take these brakes and change them yourself. Take this, this, this exhaust manifold or this starter or alternator and just fix it yourself. You could do that. You, you love me, God. I know you can. And, and I know that that might be petty, but we've all thought of those things. When we say things like, God, give me a good parking spot. That's not hard for you. But when it's small, we go, okay, well, you know, that was silly. But, uh, but when it becomes bigger, the question lingers. When it becomes bigger and broader, the question hovers over us almost like a cloud. And I think that what I'd like to do is instead of trying to answer that question, because I'm not sure that I can, if I'm being really honest with you, why doesn't he do more? 
Maybe I can answer the question by telling you what he did do. Not so much focusing on what he did not do, but actually looking at what he did do. Because you have to remember that he, his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And as far as the heavens are above the earth, which by the way is, an, is, a, is something that is immeasurable. We do not have the tools to, cal- to calibrate the spans of heaven and where we are. And that's how different the ways of God are from us. And what happens is, is we, when we begin to focus on why he doesn't, we begin to place ourselves and our thoughts and our ways above his, which, by the way, is the fruit. It's the result of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. So let me just take a few minutes uh, and, and, and tell you what God did do. What did God do about evil in this world? Well, the Bible tells us this, that before the world was ever created, God had a plan to fix what would be broken. It says that Jesus Christ himself would give his life for us. And before the foundation of the world, the Bible says in Revelation that the Lamb of God was slain. In other words, that before the world began, God had already committed the full commitment of his love and his glory in his life to remedy a problem that didn't even exist except in his knowledge. And then, and then when, when uh, he began to put people into place and create, he created an environment that would sustain us. I was talking with a group of uh, uh, students and I asked them this question. I said, tell me one thing that God made that God needed. And they thought for a few minutes and they all laughed. They said, well, he doesn't need air. He doesn't need land. He doesn't need sea. He doesn't need people. He doesn't need animals. He doesn't need any of those things. Now tell me one thing that God created uh, that we don't need. How many of us ate something this morning that came from grain or an animal? And it's been producing that for human history. So that even 6,000 years later, you and I are still living off of the kindness of God and what he created and the creative wisdom of God. So before he ever created, he had already had a plan to redeem. But when he created, he had a plan to demonstrate his love for us that we would be cared for by what he created. And then sin interrupted that. That's when sin became, uh, uh, Adam and Eve sinned, and that's when sin interrupted what God had already planned, what he had created. From creation, from land, from nature to people, all lived under corruption. And so when that happened, here's what God did. He went and found Adam and Eve, and he said, listen, um, you guys, I know what happened. You know what happened, and I've got a plan to fix it. I've got a plan that someday down the road, I'm going to rectify all of this and make it new. And to make that plan happen, he created a people. It's the nation of Israel, in case you're wondering who those people were. He created a people and he said, these people, he called a man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, Sarah, Sarai to Sarah, and he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and in you all the world will be blessed because you will bring the rescuer, the redeemer, into the world 
who will bless all nations. He created a people. And then he protected those people. And he loved those people. And he gave those people land and a place. And he said, listen, I'm going to give you my truth. I'm going to write it on your hearts. This was all in his redemptive plan. This is all what he has done. And then came the birth of Christ. In Bethlehem, that's not disputed that Jesus was born there. In in Judea, in and by the way, when Jesus was born, there were hundreds of prophecies fulfilled just in that. Throughout his life, there were hundreds of prophecies fulfilled. And in his death, there were hundreds and hundreds of prophecies fulfilled that people could point to and say, yeah, he, there's no way he would orchestrate that or could orchestrate that. You see, through the birth of Christ, God entered in the world. He said, the light has come. I am the rescuer is here. And now... There's going to be a plan, and that's why Jesus came, was to be the rescuer. And then his life, you know, his, his life, uh, his friends said he was perfect. <laughs> that's pretty impressive, because I do not have one friend that would say I'm perfect. That I, Not one of my friends would say there's no sin in him. They would have a list, which is why I don't tell you who my friends are. See, the life of Christ satisfied all the holiness of God. So that when God looked down at humanity, he could say, Jesus did it perfect. And so when he died on a cross, his death satisfied the justice because you go all the way back to the garden. He says, sin will bring death. And Jesus was the only one who did not deserve that death. And so when he died, God somehow, and this is a, this is a God thing. It's not a, God put all the sin of the world, past, present, and future on Jesus. So that all I have to do is respond to him by faith. And then, but this is what God did. Remember, we're not talking about why he didn't stop the oncoming truck or the cancer or the wave or the fire or the famine or the, we're talking about what he actually did do. And then there's the resurrection of Christ. And the Bible says that when Jesus got out of that grave, the satisfaction of God for the penalty of sin was sealed. God is forever satisfied with the penalty of sin. And he said, if you come to me by faith, I'll give you that satisfaction. And then finally, God created a people. It's called the church. The church is not those people who just gather on a Sunday, but it's, it's the people who live under this, under this mission of God. It says, I'm planning to rescue the world. And, and they gather on Sundays. They gather on weekdays. They gather in homes. They gather in buildings around the world. They gather underground so no one can find them uh, because they'll be killed. But it's the people. He created a people. In fact, the sense in the Bible says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. It's called the church. And Jesus said, I'm going to build that. And so he created a people. And then he created a promise. By the way, that was a people with a mission that he gave them to say, hey, now take this good news that the life and death and the resurrection of Christ satisfies God. And now they have access to God. Take that good news to that people. He gave a mission and to those people. He gave a promise. He said, and someday I will make all things new. I will make all things new. And those who've been bent over with arthritis, those who've carried the weight of depression, those who have lived under the confusion of a good God in a broken world. Stay with me, he says. 
I'm going to make all things new. And you're going to live with me just as I intended from the beginning, and sin will be dealt with. And so the real question for me, and I, and I understand that, that that may not satisfy you. That answer may not satisfy you. And that, that people who hear this might be going, yeah, but, yeah, but, but what about, what, what, what about, what about, what about? I can't answer all those questions. And even if you were sitting in my, in my office or in my room today, I'm not sure I have answers that would satisfy you. And so I'm not trying to say, here's every answer. Let's put a nice bow on top of this question. I'm simply saying, here's some ways that move us and help us think and maybe allow faith hope and love to enter into the room where we store these questions. So finally, let me see if I can't wrap this up with this. How do I live with the question? That's really what it's about at times. How do I live with this question? And there are some aspects of this question that, that when I find answers, I'm not satisfied with the answer. I stood over the uh, vacant body of a four-year-old boy. His dad was literally weighing down on me because that was his son. And as he sat there, he just kept saying, why, God, why? Why, why, God, why? Why, oh, God, why? And, I, and we wept together, and as we did... The Holy Spirit said in my heart, there's not an answer you can give him that will satisfy him. It's not as if he knew why, that he'd pause and go, well, God, that makes sense. Now I can be happy. Because he's living in a world that wasn't meant to be. Death was not meant to be. Tragedy was not meant to be. It entered through sin. So, so don't try to answer why right now, Leonard. Just Show them how to live with the question. Just show them how to live. And, and the first step for me was to hug him and hold him and just say, man, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. We stood there for over an hour. His mom was in the corner sobbing. Just, it's my fault. It's my fault. Oh. I realized that in this moment, why just isn't satisfying. So how do I live with the question is what I want to think about. See, I recognize in the midst of asking, I can't even scratch the surface of an answer. So I want to just share two thoughts and then I'll get out of here. And you can go on with your day. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read some words that I think point us to uh, not so much an answer, but really, how do I live? How do I live with the question? How do I live with the question um, of uh, why or how, how do we deal with this? How do we fix this struggle? How do we walk through this door? And so Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we know that if this tent we live in, if our earthly bodies, that eventually they're going to be torn down and we're going to have one that is made by God. It's an eternal house in heaven. We're going to have a new body to live in eternity with God. He says, we know that. We know that. And it's one that, that's not been built by human hands, but by God himself. And 
But while we're here, he says, we groan. We long to be clothed with that, that new body, one with no pain, one with no frustration, one that lives perfectly in the presence of God. But meanwhile, in between all this, until we get there, we groan. And there's two, there's two thoughts that I want to share, actually more than that, but the two that I want to share. First one is, is we know, and then we groan. You see, here's what we know. We know that we're not made for this. So we feel it every day. We wonder ourselves, um, how in the heck do I get through this? And he says, listen, we know. We know this isn't how it's supposed to be. We know that life is unfair. We know that we experience pain that we didn't create. Well, we also experience pain that we did create. But we know. And when what we know runs up against what really is, it says we groan. Oh, we groan and we ache. We weep. And then it says we live. We live our lives to please God. We live our lives to be in connection with God. We live our lives to please God. We live our lives to be walking with God. Because he's the one who put within us what we know. And he's the one who hears our groaning. In fact, the Bible says that, that when we pray, sometimes we don't even have words. And it just comes out as groaning. And God the Holy Spirit hears them and translates that groan to the Father. We know. And right now we know. We can know that God does love us. We can know that there is a God who is good. That we can know that God that this is not the life he intended. And then we groan. And then it says we live. We live in friendship with God. We live in relationship with God. We live in mission with God because then we embrace our calling. And God sends us into the world not to avoid brokenness, but to walk with people in brokenness. Not to avoid the, the weight of sin and destruction, but to literally live fully alive in it and be able to say, this is how we're to navigate it. This is how we live with that tension of what we know and what is. We embrace our calling and we live as ambassadors speaking the words of God. We live as those who understand there's a goodness of God that is confusing. There's a power of God that is confusing. And then we trust. We trust that what God did do is a better answer than why he didn't do something that we thought of. So here's my conclusion. I think that this is a question worth visiting. And for me, it's impossible to avoid. In the wake of tragedies where half an entire village that I just visited in West Africa was killed by extremists, I can't avoid the question. I can't, I can't help myself but thinking, God, why? why? Why in the world does this happen? And when a school in my own region is attacked and families are irrevocably changed through senseless acts of murder, 
I can't avoid the question. I'm not even sure we're supposed to. And when an earthquake in Syria and Turkey takes the life of more than 50,000 people like it did in March, and we don't even talk about it anymore, I can't avoid the question. And when every day people starve to death, and every day when, when, when young kids, I was in South Africa during the World Cup and I met some guys who were there to do work with, with the anti-trafficking uh, ministry. And they said during this time in South Africa, there will be almost one million sex workers brought into South Africa and sold into and rented out and borrowed for sexual pleasure of men and women. And of those million, 750,000 of them will be slaves. Trafficked, kidnapped, sold, all different avenues. And as I heard that, my heart just sunk and I said, God, why? I can't avoid the question. I can't seem to avoid it. So when the question comes, here's what I do. I choose to accept my inability to answer it satisfactorily. I embrace the one who himself is the answer, not just provides an answer, but he himself is the answer. Because the Bible says that God made him, that's Jesus, to, who knew no sin, to literally become sin on our behalf so that in him I could be declared righteous and I could have home. Home in eternity where he says, I will wipe every tear from your eye. And I will make everything new because I live with you now and you live with me. So folks, thanks for joining me. Uh, I, we won't do this all the time, but every once in a while, I just got something on my heart and I just want to share it. And so I appreciate you joining me today on Say Yes and Become. And it's a little different. Next week, uh, I can't wait to have my friend Justin back with us as we celebrate our one year anniversary. Hey, God bless.